0: you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information. I just need some information. I've been dying. I've been dying. Is it lack of education? I've been reading. I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted. I'm addicted. Is it
1: overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Sixth, the Sixth Sense Report. Hear ye, hear ye. Come on, come on. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels.
2: Man. I think we're definitely uh, getting a subject matter expert in on this one. <laughs> I thought we were against subject matter experts. I know, I know. But, uh, I wondered how you would respond to that, uh, to that <laughs> reference after our SME critiques. over. No, the- no, hey, no, just to be clear,
1: um, you know, it's good to have knowledgeable people, but it, it's important to, um, to make sure that the people are thinking for themselves, Giving, you know, telling them, teaching the thinkers, teaching people how to think, not what to think. As a subject matter expert
2: So on that note, we're joined by Andre Schutten uh, Who's the Director of Law and Public Policy And General Legal Counsel for ARPA Canada Thank you,
0: Andre, for joining us Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show
2: No, thank you Well, thank you
1: for uh, making time for us uh, Actually, I've been listening to you for a very long time um, And I was like, man, that guy's so smart I was <laughs> no, like, yeah. I was like yeah 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 really every every time i I listen to you speak, I've always learned something so so thank you for um doing this so this is this is well, exciting for me
0: well, thank you very much for those kind words i mean uh uh they're very flattering um so thanks i uh <laughs> I, I definitely have learned much from many other people, including uh yourself there because uh i've I've also heard you speak, I think for the first time last summer and and uh, learned, learned a lot from your speech uh, that I was in attendance for. And it was, uh, it was great to learn from you, to meet you for the first time then, and, uh, and to keep on learning. And now to be on your show is really cool. So thanks oh, for having okay, me. Okay,
1: good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely grateful. So why don't you, um, you know, give the audience a little bit of your background? How did you end up at ARPA? How did you know, sure. your legal career sort of get to that place?
0: Yeah, so I'm the Director of Law and Public Policy for ARPA. ARPA stand, is an acronym, A-R-P-A. And it stands for the Association for Reformed Political Action. So reforms being the reformed theological tradition. And, and so we're a group, a Christian organization that... Uh, engages, equips, educates, encourages Christians in this country, in Canada, to be politically engaged, to be politically active. And then we also, the second part of our mission is to bring a biblical perspective to our civil governments, whether that's in the executive branch of government, the legislative branch, or in the judiciary. So I've made presentations to various House of Commons uh, committees, Senate committees. I've been in uh, the the courts, uh, Superior Court, the Courts of Appeal, and the Supreme Court of Canada on on various important constitutional cases. And and we you know lobby politicians and so on to try to advance good public policy, good laws in this country that that benefit not just ca- uh, Christians, of course, that but that benefit all Canadians. And we're informed, of course, by our theological tradition and and by Scripture itself. Uh, we believe that. The gospel is something uh, that is liberating. It's something that has something good to say. It gives us good direction for all aspects of life. That would include, of course, the political sphere.
2: Hmm. Hmm. I, I. I. You know, myself as well as Darnell, I think, have both um, been exposed to to your constitutional talk. Um, maybe that's not the right way to reference it at uh, Ezra Institute. Right. Uh, Darnell, as you mentioned, when Darnell was speaking, I think is when he heard it. I. I spent the. Earlier in uh, November at the pastor's colloquial uh, at Ezra and was really blessed um, I, I wonder if you can speak to um, you know what gave the impetus for you to to even cultivate that talk and mm-hmm. then uh, maybe speak to you know where do you usually give it and and how it's uh, mm-hmm. a useful tool for you
0: right so I've definitely come to understand particularly in the last two years that there's a a massive lack of understanding of how we got the constitutional arrangement that we have today like why does our civil government work the way it does why do certain why are certain systems in place why is the judiciary independent from Parliament why does Parliament have its two houses the House of Commons and the Senate how is it supposed to keep the government in check or does it or does the government actually dictate how uh, you know is it the prime minister that should dictate the types of laws we have in this country or should it be uh, Parliament as a whole that does that and so on and how does that all have, all develop? And in the last two years, I've seen such unprecedented uh restrictions on on freedom and and liberty that uh I wondered if is there some sort of amnesia <laughs> going on around uh our constitutional history and and so I'm a lawyer i I went through law school uh, over a decade ago. And actually, our constitutional history is not taught in law school. Uh, in fact, it's not taught in any of the law schools in Canada, with the exception of one. And there, it's only an optional course if you want to take it. So, so if I take, in, in my law school, my constitutional history goes back to 1867 when Canada became a country. And so there's, there's one course that I have to take that, that studies that aspect of our constitution. But there's no study. That goes back beyond that. How, like, no talk about Magna Carta from from 1215 AD, like over 800 years ago. No talk about the Glorious Revolution of 1688. No talk about the enduring struggle over 600 years between the church, between the gentry or the the barons and the king. Um, no talk about the struggle for human rights for fundamental freedoms to be enshrined in a law above the king. All of that was was missing from my legal career or my legal education. And so I, I started digging into that myself over the last two years, done, done quite extensive reading on both from a historical perspective and also a legal historical perspective. And I've developed a, a presentation that um, I thought might be a little boring sounding with its title, but it's, <laughs> it's called... Um, our constitutional heritage in the West. And what I try to do is to explain to a lay audience, so people who are non-lawyers, in a way that's engaging um, how we got to where we are today so that we can understand and appreciate just what went into the long 800 plus year struggle for uh, a constitutional democracy that we have today. Uh, and also what's at stake if we're not aware of what all went into it and, and what can so easily be lost. And, and I think what we are losing over the last two years. Um, yeah. And so I give that presentation. Uh, I have given it to multiple churches um, across uh, the country and, and to other other groups and, and it's been well received. Um, so, so, yeah. And, and I think, you know, some of the issues that that you've been talking about on the podcast, you know, touch on this as well. Uh, too many of us, including lawyers and judges uh, and politicians, but also just regular uh, average citizens in this country just don't know that history. And if we don't know our history, we're bound to repeat it in, in terrible ways. And, and so my hope is that if, if more citizens can be awakened to, uh, yeah, the, the, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the the, uh, the pain. And the suffering and the loss that has been sacrificed for the the system of law and the system of government that we have today, then perhaps if we understand that, we we would be more eager to defend it against against certain erosions and 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 attacks. Mm.
2: Yeah, would you? I'm curious. Um, So when I was in school, I I, again doing accounting, but I had this. I was really into economics, and I took a course called History of Economic Thought, Mm -hmm. but. The prof was talking about how, you know, very much like the teachers or the professors that were currently teaching this course, when they're gone, no one's going to continue teaching this. And I was just wondering, you know, is there a parallel there where let's call it history of legal thought used Mm -hmm. to be something that was taught Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, disappeared? Um, I'm wondering if you've sort of covered that or learned about that as well in Mm -hmm. your digging
0: Yeah. So there's one Canadian legal historian, his name is Ryan Alford, and he wrote a book as published last year called Seven Absolute Rights. And it's an excellent, excellent book. He's he's an excellent historian. And he makes that point that, in fact, up until the 1950s, in order to be, uh, in order to receive your law license, in order to complete your legal education, you didn't just have to do one mandatory course on your constitutional history. You had to do three mandatory courses that's that was the absolute minimum and that was at a time before the charter was in place i mean now the mandatory constitutional course that you have to take in law school basically is 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 dominated by the charter so back then you're reading uh you know you're reading blackstones institutes you're reading uh about edward coke and the struggle between the judiciary and the king you're reading about magna carta uh you're reading about history and and all, everything that went into the constitutional arrangement of 1867 when Canada became a country, all of that was mandatory uh, lessons back then until the 1950s when there was a sudden uh, and very deliberate shift away from the idea of constitutional law um, as being a law distinct from the whim or the will of the gov- uh, of the governing people, of, of the government, uh, towards what's called legal positivism, which is basically saying that you know, the rule of law is basically being uh, governed by due process, and as long as, as long as the laws are passed in in a proper way, then whatever the law says, the law says, and and there's no, um, yeah, there's no deeper grappling with these more foundational constitutional prim- principles like freedom of religion or freedom of speech or um, inherent human rights apart from you know, the, the will of the people as reflected in, in, in the laws of the government.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, no, that's helpful. Now uh, to transition uh, to uh, the, the topic of the day or what's Mm -hmm. what everybody's talking about right now is bill C for the legislation to uh, ban conversion therapy. Can you give us some commentary on it and what's it about and Mm -hmm. why it's important?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when, when people talk generally about banning conversion therapy, most Canadians would be in agreement and say, yeah, conversion ther- therapy, the little that they no- might know about it is sounds like a despicable practice and we should be uh, all on the same page about uh, banning it. Uh, it. You know, or Sometimes people are even surprised that it isn't banned already. Well, um, it all comes down to how do you define the practice of conversion therapy? So if by conversion therapy, we're talking about a coercive, Torturous procedure by which somebody um, is is try, uh, by a, by which a person tries to convert somebody from a homosexual uh, identity to a heterosexual identity, um, you know, through things like electrical shock therapy or or, or um, weird shaming rituals or that kind of stuff. Then you know, if that's what we mean by conversion therapy, then then okay, fine, uh, no problem. We can we can ban something like that. The problem is. Is that Bill C4, which just passed into law, and its predecessor, Bill C6, which was in the previous parliament but didn't pass before the election was called? Those bills have defined conversion therapy so broadly, and I think intentionally so. They've defined it so broadly as to capture other forms of uh, therapy or other forms of practices, like spiritual counseling, for example, or pastoral counseling, or talk therapy. And so, And by doing that, what they have done is said, we're going to pass a law that bans conversion therapy. And now the definition of conversion therapy includes pastoral counseling, spiritual counseling, talk therapy. And so for anybody who chooses for themselves to seek out spiritual counseling around questions of sexual identity, sexual ethics, and so on, that if they seek that counseling out from somebody who comes out of a biblical worldview, uh, from a Christian pastor, let's say, who holds the uh, the Word of God as as the ultimate source of truth, then they're going to run afoul of this law. It, the law won't target the person seeking the counseling, but the law will target the person offering the counseling or giving the counseling, and that's a really big problem. It's a big problem for pastors and uh, Christian counselors, and it's a big problem for uh, particularly for members of the LGBTQ community because such a law is very discriminatory against them.
1: Mm-hmm. How, how so actually?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the impact on pastors and counselors is, is more or less obvious, right? It will now be effective uh, January 8th of 2022. Uh, it will now be a crime to offer, promote, advertise, or provide any service, practice, or treatment that seeks to change a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression, right? So that obviously tar- targets pastors and, and counselors and so on. But there's actually something in it that, that is very, I think, uh, discriminatory to members of the LGBTQ community or or other people who may not identify uh, as being a member of that community, but do have same-sex attraction uh, or do struggle with their gender identity. And and that is is that the criminal code does not regulate anybody's choices as it relates to uh, the type of counselling they, they want to pursue for themselves. Uh, if you're a heterosexual, uh, if you're a heterosexual and you want to seek counselling that accords with your biblical worldview or your, your religious worldview, you have Adder, you go ahead. No, no questions asked by the, uh, the federal government, no impediments from the criminal code. But if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, well, the federal government does have something to say, and the criminal code does put an impediment in your way. They say, well, you're only allowed to access these kinds of counseling or this kind of counseling over here, but not this kind of counseling over there, even if you want to consent to it. So, you know, counseling that accords to your religious worldview, if, if you're a Christian, but a member of the LGBTQ community, or if you're a Christian and you have same-sex attraction, or if you're a Christian and you're struggling with your gender identity, well, there's certain types of support and help and, and counseling that, that is out of bounds for you because of your same-sex attraction or because of your membership in the LGBTQ community. And that, on its face, is discriminatory. You know, who does, with all due respect to the Attorney General of Canada, Mr. David Lametti, who's the one who introduced this bill, you know, who is he to tell uh, a man or a woman who struggles with same-sex attraction what kind of therapy or what kind of counseling they should or should not have access to? It's a form of condescension, a form of uh, patronizing uh, on the part of the government towards people, adults. In, in this country who, who, uh, yeah, that, that I think is actually pretty despicable.
2: So I think, um, you know, what you've done is definitely demonstrate a little bit of the the fact that this bill has some uh, illogical conclusions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think I've heard you speak on a few more of those. And, and I was wondering if you could, you know, give a couple other examples where when you try to when you apply this law, you can see there's some absurdities of how certain things come to play. The One of the examples I think I recall you talking about was wearing makeup with regards to children. Right. Um, yeah.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, there's two things that are, are really worth pointing out in this bill. Um, uh, so the first is, is it's, it's internal inconsistencies. Yeah. Like you said. So for example, in the preamble, it talks about how, uh, this bill is necessary because it's condemning and, um, and, and ending harmful practices that are based on harmful stereotypes uh, about gender and about sex. But then it goes on to define conversion therapy in a way that says that any practice, any uh, yeah, any service or any practice that attempts to get somebody, uh, a child or an adult, to um, reduce their gender expression Uh, that does not align to their sex assigned at birth is a form of conversion therapy. Well, for any lawmaker or any person who's charged with enforcing the law, a police officer or or, uh, a judge applying the law or uh, anyone else, in order for them to make any sense of that aspect of conversion therapy, um, you actually need to uh, apply a very rigid gender stereotype. So let me, let me spell it out with an example because, because it's pretty confusing to, to try to explain it without having the words in front of us. So I'll give you the example. So the example is this. I have three kids, uh, two boys and a girl. Um, if I have a rule in my house, a practice in my house that says that nobody in my, my house is allowed to wear uh, makeup until they're 18 years old, um, I just say, you know that's that's my rule, and I don't like you know, maybe as a parent, I don't like makeup because it sexualizes children, let's say, um or has a a tendency to do that, okay, so that's my rule, then I'm allowed to enforce that rule, that practice against my daughter because if she wears or doesn't wear makeup, it has nothing to do with her gender identity or her gender expression um insofar as it being different than her Gender identity aligning with her sex, so called sex assignment at birth. But if I enforce that rule vis a vis my son, let's say my son at age 14 or 16 wants to start wearing eyeliner or lipstick or blush or whatever, nail polish. And I say, no, 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 you can't do that. The practice in this house, the rule in this house is no makeup until you're 18. Well, now suddenly it's a practice that seeks to reduce the gender expression of an individual where that expression does not align with his sex assigned at birth. Because I'm saying, because, it, but in order for that to make sense, there has to be a stereotype, a rigid stereotype about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man as it relates to the use of makeup. Mm. So, so, so in order to make <laughs> any sense of this, of this new rule, this new criminal law, you actually have to have a rigid understanding of what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl, and actually the behavior of a boy and a behavior of a girl, uh, and, and so it's like inherently self-contradictory. It, it's a really, really problematic bill, and that's what you get when—and this is going to be my second point about the bill. This is what you get <laughs> when you have a deeply, deeply religious piece of legislation that's unmoored from reality, and—and and this is what I would want your listeners to really understand. That Bill C four is one of the most explicitly uh, religious pieces of of legislation we've seen in a very, very long time. I mean, uh, yeah, so, and you'll see it most clearly when you read the preamble to the bill. It uses language like myth uh, multiple times, and it describes, it doesn't describe mythical facts, right? Myth is usually applied to facts. Uh, factual claims, right? Like if you say uh, a unicorn is a real animal, you say, no, no, it's a mythical creature. It's, it's a myth that unicorns mm-hmm. exist, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it's either fact or myth. But what they do in the preamble of this bill is they apply it to value judgments, to value claims. Well, mm-hmm. you can't say that one value claim is mythical and another one is not. It, it, it's either... It's a, either a true or a good or a just value claim, or it's not. But but those are things that we debate in in philosophical and religious terms. And so what this bill says is that it's a myth that one sexual orientation or one gender identity or gender expression should be preferred over another. And that's what they want to condemn. That's what they want to denounce through this bill. Well, well what does that say then about uh, not just the Christian worldview as it relates to sex- sexual ethics and the Christian worldview as it relates to to gender and sex, uh, to to personal identity. It actually is a claim against other religious views on this as well. The Jewish uh, religion has very distinct views on this. The, the Islamic, Islamic worldview, view. Uh, the Buddhist worldview, the Hindu worldview, um, uh, First Nations Aboriginal spirituality has has. Um, claims around these things. Mm-hmm. And so what Bill C4 is saying is the relig- there is a religion. It has a name and that it's got multiple names, but the religion behind Bill C4 is secular humanism is is one name. I actually prefer gnostic liberalism. I think it's a gnostic bill, uh deeply gnostic, and it's imposing uh the civil government through through parliament is imposing its religious worldview as it relates to identity, as it relates to sexual ethics and as it relates to to sex itself and saying our religious claims are now truth for everyone and if you have a different religious claim as it relates to sex identity and so on then we criminalize the imposition or the the promotion or the advertising of that view this is about as religious as it gets when we're talking about a criminal law ban yeah
2: yeah darnell and i have you know spoke on we had an episode on church and state and and you know, I was wondering if you could speak to a little bit about maybe um, the idea of separation of church and state, and mm-hmm. I, you know, we would definitely say it's you know perverted where they say, "Oh, that means the church can't speak to the state," where in reality mm-hmm. it should have been the state's not mm-hmm. speaking to the church. Um, right. But I'm wondering if you can also, you know, is there how do we find our constitution such mm-hmm. that things like this would not be permitted because it's clearly, uh, as you put it, a religious.
0: Law, or, or religious. Yeah, doctrine. I mean, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, a couple of thoughts, and and that's a great, great question. I think, uh, first of all, I mean, every law is a moral document, right? The tax code, I I believe, is a is a moral document because it's saying certain things are going to be taxed at higher rates than other things. For example, taxing you know alcohol and cigarettes at a higher rate than others is a form of uh, it's, there, there's a morality behind that or taxing higher income earners at a higher rate than lower income earners is a, there's a moral or a, um, there's a moral uh, calculation going on there to 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 make that kind of a decision. So, so in, in every aspect, uh, law and legislation, oh, there's morality underneath it. But to the point of separation of church and state, we would say, I would say anyway, is that those are two different institutions with two different Uh, sets of uh, obligations and responsibilities, and the church shouldn't try to do the civil government's job, and the civil government shouldn't try to do the church's job. Those are distinct institutions with distinct responsibilities. Now, that's very different from saying that uh, somebody who is a member of a church can't bring their faith to bear on a public debate about what is good, right, true, beautiful, uh, as far as public policy goes. Of course, public policy needs to be informed by a religious worldview. You can't have a truly neutral worldview. Um, and so what what I would say is, uh, as it relates to this particular law and, and a constitutional challenge to it, and I think this Bill C-4 is, is constitutionally suspect at best. I, I think there's a a decent chance that that the courts may uh either strike it down or read it down it's more likely that they'll read it down what that means is they won't strike the 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 rule from the the criminal code but what they'll do is they'll say look when you're applying this this uh law you have to apply it very narrowly to coercive and torturous practices um that that are done in a, in a sort of therapeutic medical kind of situation something along those lines um so so i think that's where where the judges may uh you know bring bring it that way but but um yeah to 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 that i think that's where our constitution should be kicking in the constitution should be talking. You know, what what our judges are actually tasked to do as as interpreters and appliers of the Constitution is they should be saying, look, the Charter speaks about freedom of religion, and the Charter speaks about freedom of expression and and the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And and these rights protected in section two and section seven of the Charter, they should allow for um <clears throat> the the free exchange of ideas around, you know, these value judgments, free exchange of ideas around what are good ethi- uh, sexual ethics and what are bad sexual ethics, uh, good ideas uh, and the exchange of ideas around uh, religious claims about what it means to be human, what it means to be male and what it means to be female. And, um, and and so, you know, that's what the Charter exists to do, is to protect that that kind of debate and deliberation. So as long as, you know, quote unquote, so-called conversion therapy so broadly understood, as, as long as that's being done in a non-coercive uh, way then, then we shouldn't be criminalizing it. You know, I think that uh, yeah, and I, my hope would be that th- that a court um, would recognize that and and say, look, this this bill goes way, way, way too far. Mm-hmm. So,
1: in regards to like uh, the const our constitution, mm-hmm. um, we had uh, David Coizy's uh, Professor David Coizy's on. Uh, he wrote the book uh, Political Illusions.
0: And, political and, visions and, and illusions it's a real yeah, good political book. visions yeah, yeah, yeah. political, political
1: yeah. visions and illusions um and 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 he was he made a, a point about how our con- there are some deficiencies in our constitution in the sense it's not like the um uh, the american mm-hmm. uh, constitution so because of some of the deficiencies that our our constitution has um it, it, it kind of creates uh, a window uh, for problems to happen mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. yeah um, that, well, what, that, what would you say the differences between
0: the two yeah uh, so i mean i wish i i had studied more of um american constitutionalism but i think that the big difference that that i'm aware of is that um what canada has in our charter is section one which is which they don't have an equivalent of in the American Bill of Rights. And, and what our section one does is it says that all of the freedoms and all of the rights that follow in the charter, so your fundamental freedoms of religion and, and conscience and expression and association and so on, and your legal rights, they're, they're all subject to what's called a reasonable limits clause in section one. Section one uh, talks about how all of the rights and freedoms guaranteed in the charter are subject to such reasonable limits uh, as are prescribed by law, as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So it's called the limitation, well, it's actually in the charter, it's called the guarantee clause because it's supposed to be about guaranteeing our rights and freedoms, but it, but mm. it's become our limitation clause, limitations on rights. And, and mm. so what happens is that our judges, if you make a claim in court that says, says, uh, the government has violated my freedom of religion or the government has violated my freedom of expression, then then that's not the end of the analysis. You have to prove in court that they have violated your freedom, but then the government gets to prove they have an opportunity to prove It's like, yeah, but it was it was reasonable it was It was reasonable and necessary in a in a free and democratic society to limit that person's right because of x, y z. and then the judge actually uh, does the balancing exercise and and so I think that it's understandable that we wouldn't say freedom of religion should be an absolute right in the sense that, uh, you know, anyone who says, oh, you know, uh, I need to do this or that practice because it's my religion. And so the government can't do anything about it. Think about, for example, female genital mutilation, which has been uh, defended uh, as a as a religious practice, or there used to be a Hindu practice of burning a, uh, a widow alive on the funeral pyre of her of her dead husband you know um no one in canada would say that oh that that should be a religious practice protected by freedom of religion of course not there there has to be a reasonable limit in a free and democratic society that says no we don't do that we Mm -hmm. don't do that religious practice here it's it's not okay uh, and we will prohibit it by law as we should but what has happened instead is that actually um there's a whole lot more of our religious practices and and beliefs that have been uh, limited more and more and more by the massive growth of what's called the administrative state, that is the bureaucracy. and and that as as the bureaucracy grows, the more it interferes with with religious practices, whether that's in education or or in worship or in um, uh, social services, including things like counseling, what we're talking about now. and and as, as the state grows, um, uh judges have become, I think the trend has been that they've become more and more deferential to the state bureaucracy. And 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 there's this level of trust that the judiciary, the judges have, not of the citizens, uh, but of the uh, bureaucracy to say, well, the bi- bureaucracy, they have these experts in medicine and they have these experts in law and they have experts in um, counseling or experts in um all kinds of other things. And, and so those experts say that we need to restrict this or that religious practice. And, and so they keep deferring to the reasonableness claims of the bureaucracy. And that's, that's a big impediment. They're not, it seems to me that the trend has been, especially as it relates to the fundamental freedoms, the trend has been that, that our courts are much too deferential to the administrative state, to the, to the bureaucracy. Mm hmm. mm -hmm. No, that's
2: good. Um, I want to circle back a little bit. You had mentioned a little bit about, you know, the judges striking down some of the let's call the bad parts of this bill or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, confining the application Mm
0: -hmm. to the
2: to a a coercive context. Can you speak to, you know, how did we end up in this place where we would deem the bill to be so bad? How did it get passed without um, some of this constitutional rigor being applied to say, is it constitutional? Agree or disagree
1: with our views? Give us your two cents. You can leave your comments on any of our social media platforms or email us at sixcentsreport at gmail.com. Six cents makes change. six cents makes
0: So I'm glad you raised that because how Bill C-4 got passed in Parliament is actually a historical anomaly. It's absolutely unprecedented to my knowledge. We've never seen in the history of Canada an amendment to the criminal code that uh, passed through both houses of Parliament, so both the House of Commons and the Senate, without any deliberation, without any debate, without, without any true vote on its content, without any study by any of the committees. Um, this is unprecedented. So, so what we have is is a bill that's changing the criminal code in, in a in a very big way, and not one parliamentarian ever got to speak to uh, the bill and or raise any concerns about the bill or study the bill. And and that that should be shocking to this nation, no matter what side of the issue you are you are on. I mean, um, it, it's, it's it's been a total collapse of the opposition in our parliamentary democracy. So, so let me just backtrack for you for a little bit. So, before Bill C four was Bill C six in the previous Parliament, which was saying, which was on similar content. It was a an act to amend the Criminal Code to ban conversion therapy. But in Bill C six, the definition was actually even more vague. Um, so, So, a very vague definition can be problematic, but sometimes a vague definition. Could give us a little bit of cover because of its vagueness. So you can you can hope that a judge would would be able to work with a vague definition and try to uh, try to allow pastors and counselors and so on to to be able to do non coercive counseling. Mm. But but what Bill C six said is you're allowed to consent as an adult. You're allowed to consent to so called conversion therapy. If you consent, then it's not criminal. And at the time, so we're talking just six months ago the Attorney General of Canada himself, David Lametti, said at the Justice Committee that he had to allow for consenting adults to do conversion therapy because the Charter required it. And he said that the Department of Justice, who answers to him, had wrestled with this question and they had come back and advised him that we cannot ban it for uh, consenting adults because the Charter um, wouldn't allow for that. And yet now with Bill C-4, six months later, We get this bill tabled and it bans it also for consenting adults and and so uh like it's a whole new bill it's it's totally different in in that sense and so for the opposition uh the conservatives in in the house of commons as well as in the senate for them to not put up a fight at all uh, and to point out that say, like, look, the justice minister himself, the liberal justice minister said just half a year ago, he is on record as saying that neither he nor the entire justice department believes that you can ban conversion therapy for consenting adults. Why in the world now does this bill ban it for consenting adults? That's the ta- That's a basic talking point, an easy reason to vote against Bill C4. And yet what happened? Well, what happened is that on November 29th, it's a Monday late in the afternoon. Justice Minister David Lemeny introduces bill C four it's tabled, and the bill is is as bad as I've already outlined two days later on Wednesday December the first it's the opposition so this conservatives right so it's a liberal uh, justice minister who tables the bill it's a liberal bill it's the conservatives on 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 uh, December the first in the afternoon they put forward what's called a unanimous motion which calls on the entire House of Commons to pass bill c4 without by skipping every single stage of deliberation skip second reading skip sending it to committee skip the study skip the witnesses skip the experts uh skip any sort of amendments skip third reading and and debate and deliberation at that stage and pass it straight into the senate and and the way an a unanimous motion works is that the motion is read off and then you're not you don't vote for the motion you there's simply a pause the, the the speaker pauses he waits for anyone to say nay and all you need is a single nay one no in in the house of 338 mps and and then it's like okay no we, if, if even just one person says no, no no we should we should actually study this bill then fine then it goes back and goes through the entire parliamentary process but no one spoke nobody up he said no no one said no no one said no even though again just six months ago the Justice minister himself should have said no to such a bill because he had said well this is unconstitutional so the, the time to fix something like that would be at what's called committee study right and that's where the house of commons all 338 of these MPs they don't all deliberate over the the finer content of of a bill like it's sent to a special committee that specializes in that subject matter and so this bill should have gone to what's called the justice committee and the justice committee has uh, i think it's uh, 15 i think MPs that sit on it that are more more or less experts in the issues of justice in the criminal code and so on. And, and they bring in witnesses and, and experts and, and so on. I've presented to that committee before and, and they say, oh, look, this section is really good. This section is problematic for these reasons and you should adjust it this way or just add this word or delete this phrase or whatever. That happens there. The bill is refined and then it comes back to the House of Commons for a final debate and vote. That's what's supposed to happen, but it didn't happen. So then, so that's December 1st, right? Skips that entire process. So then we're like, okay, uh, that's crazy. I can't believe that happened. That took everybody by surprise. So we're like, okay, well, let's focus on the Senate. Maybe the Senate will do its job. It's been called the, the, the Chamber of Sober Second Thought, right? So, so let's see what they're going to do. Well, it goes to the Senate and lo and behold, in the Senate, same thing. The leader of the opposition, the leader of the conservatives, he that senator, Stands up and puts forward a unanimous motion saying, oh, let's just pass this bill. We have b- better things to do. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. Mm-hmm. We have better things to do. Let's just pass this bill without deliberation, study uh, or debate. And and again, same thing happened. So that happened on uh, last week, um, uh, Tuesday, I believe it was. Uh, so about six days after after it passed through the House of Commons. Again, skips second reading and debate. It skips uh, study at the committee. It skips witnesses and experts um, and stakeholders. It skips third reading debate and it's passed straight into law. The next day, it was December 8th, it was signed into law by the Governor-General. It comes into effect January 8th of of 2022. So I I actually wrote an article about this very problem, and this goes back to our constitutional heritage um, in a way, um, because, because we used to have it 800 years ago that the king as the head of the government he what his will what his word was was law and there was no opposition opposition was not allowed <laughs> and and so uh over the course of about 400 or 500 years there is uh, all kinds of conflict and struggle and w- war and bloodshed and torture and um imprisonment and so on and and over the course of 500 600 years or so um, we developed a parliamentary system in in England and and that really comes to a pinnacle in in the year 1688 which, with with what's called the Glorious Revolution, where um, Parliament uh, asserted its supremacy over the king and the government, uh, and part of that supremacy is that within parliament, there must always be debate and deliberation. And and some people within parliament would be very supportive of the king. Some people would have concerns about the king and his actions and, and so on. But the point was that parliament would keep the king and his government in check. That's where we got the phrase responsible government from. That is not that well, they're so responsible because they spend their money so wisely, they never go into debt. That's not what we mean by responsible government. What we mean is that the government, which is the prime minister and his cabinet and that massive bureaucracy, they are responsible to parliament. But in order for parliament to work the way it's supposed to work, it's set up as an, what's called an adversarial system, which is that they're supposed to deliberate and debate and ask questions. And that's particularly the role of the opposition. And so... Uh, John Diefenbaker, who was our prime minister in the 1950s, he was a conservative uh, prime minister. He's a pretty remarkable man, actually. And some of his his, his uh, legacy with Canada is actually pretty, uh, is a good legacy. He's the one who gave the vote to, to our First Nations peoples. He's the one who brought in the Canada Human Rights, um, uh, the Bill of Rights, sorry. And and he's, he, he had made many other advances in human rights in this country. And and he spoke about the very, very important role of the opposition. He said the role of the opposition is as important in parliament as that of the government because its role is to keep the, the, the government side in check. It's to ask questions. It's to to force the government to explain itself. And that totally collapsed on this bill. And it should shock the conscience of this nation that no opposition Uh, stood up and simply asked questions. No no opposition member said no, no, we're not going to fast track this one because this is a clearly unconstitutional bill or this bill is going to have implications for pastors and counselors across this country or this bill has an unusual impact on the LGBTQ community uh, and, and could be seen as discriminatory against them or this bill is simply uh, poorly drafted, whatever. I don't care what they have to say about about the bill so much as the fact that it should be debated. And that was completely missing last week. So it it does not speak well. It does not speak well for the health of our democracy in this country. That's for sure. I I published, so so I went back to, the writings and the spe- uh, speeches of uh, John Diefenbaker. And, and I did an interview with him post-mortem, like after he has died, um, and, and just took direct quotes from speeches he's given or things he's said, and I fit it into a, a back and forth dialogue between myself and him. And, and just to show just how, um, yeah, h- how much the opposition, which is a conservative opposition in, in this parliament, uh, how, how much they failed in their task a, a week and two weeks ago.
2: Mm. Yeah,
1: it's funny. When I was listening to uh, the episode on Liberal, Liberty Dispatch, uh, Michael Michael Thiessen, <laughs> he was pretty uh, not happy about that. And um, he was saying like, yeah, like, where are the Christian political representatives? Mm-hmm. Um, he was really disappointed that, that there was no believers that right. were able to stand up and say something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine that it would have been a very very tense moment. It happened very quickly and so on. Um I, I have a couple of friends that that are members of parliament and you know, I asked them straight up like what in the world happened? Like that that's crazy and and it was clear that there was a phenomenal amount of pressure in the moment. Um of course. so so I have some empathy for that and yet at the same time it's like this, this is unacceptable. And, and this is a thing that's, that's missed. Like you can watch footage uh, on YouTube or whatever of, of this motion going down. And, and you actually see members of the, of the opposition, like literally dancing up and down with joy that this passed unanimously and, uh, clapping and hugging and cheering with the, with the liberals and so on. And, um, you know, be that as it's, as, as it may.
2: Breaking all their rules at the same time. Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah. Like, like, uh, the, the, you know, social distancing didn't matter anymore. But, but the thing that is absolutely um, uh, terrible about it, the thing that's so sad about it, is that, um, is that they don't understand what they've just done. And that is that, that they've said it's now a criminal offense to offer help to people who are struggling with their gender identity, or at least to offer a certain type of help. So, so again, the dates are important because that motion passed unanimously on December 1st. The very next day, December 2nd, in the National Post, which is a leading national uh, newspaper in this country, they ran a, a story with a headline, Canada Too Quick to Treat Gender Dysphoria in Minors with Hormones and Surgery, Say Critics. And the article starts out with this gut red story about a woman, a mother, whose name is Mary. They've changed her name to protect her identity. Mm-hmm. And Mary has a daughter who is troubled um, around her, her changing sexual identity. And and this daughter announced at age 16 that she was actually a transgender boy, and uh, within um, just two 15-minute appointments, the doctor uh, wrote a prescription for this daughter to have testosterone injections. Okay, so what a lot of people don't understand is it's not like you take a pill once in a while uh, of the opposite sex hormone, like testosterone. Uh, Synthetic testosterone is injected by by a needle directly into the bloodstream week after week after week. It's a perpetual um, treatment that one would have to take if they're changing their their gender identity, if if that's even a possibility. And and so just two 15-minute appointments, and this 16-year-old girl is now prescribed opposite-sex hormone injections. And then the, the story says, the reporter reports, that within months, months not years months this teenager has a double mastectomy and 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 identifies and sorry, that sorry what's tr- that a, a double mastectomy means both of her breasts were surgically oh, okay. removed right 16 years old both of her breasts are, are are removed now everybody that if you watch the press conference around bill c4 they say no, no no we need bill c4 because it's going to save lives but that's certainly not what happened with mary's daughter Mary says that her child's longstanding depression and anxiety only worsened and then at age 21 this daughter is detransitioning re- now reverting back to her female identity but what's wrong is that <clears throat> this uh young woman <clears throat> is missing her healthy uh, her healthy body parts two two of her healthy body parts were surgically removed not because they didn't work or not because they were cancerous or because there, there was something wrong with them <clears throat> or that they were having a negative impact on her health. they were they were healthy functioning body parts and they were moved from her body because uh, her doctor had given her two 15 minute uh, appointments where this girl had had expressed a, a an opposite sex gender identity and and what this daughter says to her mom is absolutely stunning. She says that while she was being wheeled into the operating room to have her breast removed, she was having doubts about her decision. And but, but what Bill C4 says and what all those dancing conservatives and liberals and everybody else in the House of Commons say <laughs> is that it was too bad, young lady, too bad for you because if you have doubts, you know, that's your problem. This is the only option available for you is that if you think you might be the opposite sex, if you might actually be transgender, well, then we've got hormones for you and we've got surgery for you. We're going to inject you with chemicals and we're going to cut off healthy body parts. And if if you have doubts, well, you've got to figure that out on your own. And what the Christian worldview says, hold on a second, hold on a second. This poor girl, she needs our compassion and she needs our help and she needs a listening ear and we need her to talk and just share what, what her struggles are and what her doubts are and so on. And so that, and, and she needs to know that, she has a beautiful uh, body that, that, that is a, is a gift and that, and that there's ways that we can talk about it and embrace it and, and, and come to love it, to love that body that she's been given. And that's the way God has actually designed her. It's, it's a beautiful gift. And I'm not saying that's gonna be easy, not by any stretch, but surely we can do better than say, here's surgery or here's chemical injections and that's all we've got for you. Bill C-4 says, we will use the power and the blunt force of the criminal law to prohibit you from having access to anyone who might give you a different view when you have those doubts. That's a stunning thing. That should absolutely shock again <laughs> the uh the consciences of of people across this country.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um it's you know a bit troubling. And and I think um you know you mentioned about the conservatives not really standing up to to prevent this or or even to debate it. Mm-hmm. Can you, you know, there's sort of two thoughts that come to my mind is like, okay, how do we as Christians respond politically? But then also, how do we as Christians respond just as the church? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, you know, the political question is a little bit more also about the environment. I mean, I've, I've been very critical that we no longer vote for representatives. We vote for teams and mm-hmm. which team is going to be uh, in power. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and so I'm just wondering if you could speak to sort of the, there, there's those two somewhat, Con- they're different, but they, I'm sure there's a lot of overlap as to how we, as the church, mm-hmm. would respond.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I think so. On on the political side, you know, um, I know there's a whole lot of Christians. Uh, I I know a lot of them who who just think that politics is this dirty sport, and and we really shouldn't get our hands dirty in in politics. That's not for us to do. As as Christians, there's actually a there's a proverb about that. I forget what the exact proverb is from the book of Proverbs, but it's something along the lines of uh, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. And I think the wisdom of that that proverb applies to politics as well. Is like, look, uh, church, uh, we're not we're not saying that you need to do dirty tricks in order to advance good uh, good politics in this country, but we, you do have to get your hands dirty. You got to roll up your sleeves and you got to got to put your hand to the plow um and and get some work done and and that means that um we need to be engaged in politics that means that we need to be uh church leaders and lay people people uh, who are not church leaders but but attend church and and confess christ is king that that they need to be communicating with their civil representatives say this is wrong like what you've done is wrong uh this is going to have profound impacts on on vulnerable canadians across this country um you, you need to repent from this, or you need to make this right. You need to fix this, and, and we're, we expect you to, and, and we're going to vote accordingly. Um, I think that the church has an obligation to do that. Uh, that's how one of the ways that the, the church is blessed in this country, compared to many other countries in this world, to be uh, part of our, our um, civil government. That's how we can influence it. But I think more than that is that we now have to prepare for for this new legal reality. And I think there's a couple of things. One, I'm a lawyer, so uh, I tend to think right away of, of court action. And, um, and and there's already plans in place to uh, to try to set up a court challenge and a constitutional challenge to this particular bill. Um, but but I certainly have have been burned enough by the courts to know that you can't put all your trust and hope in the courts. Like they they will sometimes let you down as well. Just like Parliament can let you down, so can the courts. Right. Um right. Psalm 146 is don't put your trust in princes, and I would add in the charter or, the, <clears throat> in the charter or judges either. Um, but, uh, but, but it is a, an avenue that we should be exploring. Like, like it, we don't give up, but, but we, we have to try that. And then <clears throat> the other thing that we need to be doing, of course, as the church is continuing to be uh, mission true. We have to be um, willing to continue to carry out the ministry that God has, has tasked us with. And, and it just means it's going to be a little bit more risky to do that. Um, so um, I think that w- what we need is, is courageous uh, and not just courageous, but also very compassionate um, counselors and pastors and, and leaders and teachers and mentors in the church who are willing to say, uh, to speak the truth. They're willing to say to young ladies like, like Mary's daughter that I was just talking about, look, if you have any doubts, I'm right here. I'm ready to listen. And, and if you want to change your mind, I will walk with you and stand beside you. And, and I will hold your hand, um, and, and cry with you and pray with you and do whatever it takes to make sure that you don't make a life-changing decision without having actually talked things through with somebody that we're not going to abandon you to this operating room, uh, even while you still have doubts about your decision as you're being wheeled down the hallway, um, to have both of your, your, your breasts removed. And I think that that, that, that. It's going to require courage, um, but not not courage in a way that that comes across as um, you know uh, bombastic and antagonistic towards the people that need our help. I mean, you know, I think I think it's time to push back pretty hard against some of our civil leaders who should know better. But but as it relates to these people, uh, our our fellow Canadians who are struggling with these existential questions about you know who am I and how should I live and where do I belong, that church should have a um, and uh, yeah, a, t- a tone of compassion and, and willingness to help uh, to to guide towards the truth, um, towards the peace that comes in in Jesus Christ. So there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done there. But now, under threat of criminal prosecution.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, I had a thought that I don't think we articulated it, but it's almost a guarantee that this wouldn't be allowed in
0: the scenario you
2: described about the woman who had both or the child who had both breasts removed. Mm-hmm. Would now counseling her let's say back to uh her uh gender al- aligning with her you know biology mm-hmm. like detransitioning mm-hmm. would that now be deemed illegal even though yeah. she wants to detransition
0: yeah so um the the answer is probably but not 100% clear so the reason i say probably is because it's very—it's one directional. The, the criminal code uh, amendment through Bill C-4 is one directional. So, if you want to help somebody transition in one direction, away from heterosexual or away from uh, so-called cisgender, which is where—it's where a—it's a made-up word, but it basically means that your gender identity matches your biological sex. So, if you want to transition someone away from that, no problem—that's not conversion therapy. But if you want to do the ve- very same thing, but towards that like towards heterosexual or towards cisgender that's what's illegal so that that's Mm. the question what about detransitioners do they would would detransitioning even if they choose do is that criminal um so i'd say on the face of the definition yes but this is the inherent contradiction because actually if they have effectively transitioned such that she is not no longer a female but actually now a male because well that's what we've said we've done through this operation and everything else is we transitioned her from female to male. Well, she is now quote-unquote male. She isn't actually scientifically or biologically, but anyway, that's what she identifies as. Well, what if she wants to transition again? If in fact gender is fluid and she wants to transition again, can can we twist the law and its definition to suit our purposes, in in so far as it says, well, she we're not we're actually not helping her stay male. We're helping her transition again, and she's just transitioning on to something new, which is female. Um, perhaps I don't know. Like it's no. it's one of those things that is an inherent contradiction in, in the bill. It's it's pretty crazy.
2: I, I appreciate the sort of creativity in your answer because it demonstrates the problem with the bill. It mm-hmm. demonstrates the problem with the way the rules are written.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I'll, and just to, for, for the audience, all the stuff that you referenced, like your, you know, the articles that you were talking about, um, with regards to, uh, the letter, yeah. um, I think you titled it chief concern with conversion therapy law, where mm-hmm. you're sort of having that conversation. Um,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. in Convivian magazine.
2: Yeah. I'll, I'll make sure to have that in the show notes page. Um, I'll have the bill, you know, for the listener, if while, well, you know, might be too late now to listen along and, and read uh now that i've said it but you know for our audience they would know i probably have most of this stuff um mm-hmm. you know in in our show notes um you know for for our audience you know we're we're really grateful for your time um yes sir know, i i know uh you know you've you've got some other commitments so before you go is there uh any of your work or or anything that you would uh you know like to promote that that our listeners can uh, reach out to you or you know uh the constitutional talk that you you know you uh oh right um if if they wanted to have you come to their church, how uh, how can they reach out to you? How can they uh utilize some of your services?
0: Yeah, for sure. So you can always contact me at my email address, Andre at ArpaCanada.ca, so A-R-P-A-Canada.ca. Um or check out our website, arpa canada.ca um for, for other resources and commentary on bills like Bill C four. We we engage on other social political issues as well Um, we have some resources that that folks can use as well to contact their mps in in a pretty easy straightforward manner so we've we developed technology called easy mail technology where with a few clicks you can email your own representative um in in a pretty direct way on on a a topic of concern yeah and it's actually been a pretty pretty effective tool that's been used well, also in this C4 debate, um, we used it to, to email over 4,000, um, for, uh, email senators over 4,000 times in the, in the days leading up to the Senate dealing with this bill. Mm. So that that's pretty effective and, and folks could check that out, uh, as well. And then particularly, yeah, on, on that talk around, um, our constitutional heritage, um, yeah, by all means, just, you can reach out to me by email. Andre at arpacannon.ca, and see if we can uh, can't uh, make something work.
2: Yeah, you know that easy mail technology. I am quite impressed with that. Is that something you guys developed in house because it would, you know, it it met your particular need?
0: Yep. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, we we developed in house. We had it for a number of years now. It's it's gone through a few um, updates and so on, but. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty slick if I can say so myself. So
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it,
0: it, I, and it, I think,
2: you know, I, I, to be honest for Bill C4, I, I took advantage of it, use it. What I really appreciated it was like, there's a little bit of nuance of I can cultivate the message, but you mm-hmm. guys have given me a paragraph or two or send, and I can just, oh, do I want that one or this one or what aligns? Mm-hmm. sort of, you know, you guys have done a really good job, I think with um, giving people options, but also making it super easy to draft a pretty thorough email. In a matter of minutes as opposed to you know having to sit there and write everything out for for the individual so Mm -hmm. um i would definitely uh have some respect for for the technology but also the you know it's innovative um i don't really see a lot of other people you know doing something similar so
0: oh good thank you i'm glad you could use it and yeah that's exactly right like we want to do it in a way that that your email is still from you and it's personalized by you so it's very easy to edit it but we give you talking points to make it so much easier for you so
1: That sounds helpful. Yeah, thank you again. Um, Yeah, yeah, thanks again, uh, Andre, for uh, being gracious with your time and coming on and giving us uh, these great insights. Um, I'm sure our our listeners will will definitely uh, find it helpful.
0: Good. Thanks again for having me. But you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.